Our text for this morning is Romans chapter 7, verses 15 to 25. You can find it on page 1376 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. That's page 1376, if you'd like to follow along. Romans chapter 7, verses 15 to 25. I don't know what I'm doing, because I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the thing that I hate. But if I'm doing the thing that I don't want to do, I'm agreeing that the law is right. But now I'm not the one doing it anymore. Instead, it's sin living within me. I know that good doesn't live within me. That is, in my body. The desire to do good is inside of me, but I can't do it. I don't do the good I want to do, but I do the evil I don't want to do. But if I do the very thing I don't want to do, then I'm not the one doing it anymore. Instead, it is sin that lives within me that is doing it. So I find that as a rule, when I want to do what is good, evil is right there with me. I gladly agree with the law on the inside, but I see a different law at work in my body. It wages a war with the law of my mind and takes me prisoner with the law of sin that is in my body. I am a miserable human being. Who will deliver me from this dead corpse? Thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I'm a slave to God's law in my mind, but I'm a slave to sin's law in my body. The word of God for the people of God. Today we begin a series on Christian theology and doctrines that may be a little hard to swallow. Things like hell and predestination and some more nuanced ones like, is it really good for everyone to be forgiven for everything all of the time? Some of these things we really wrestle with. The point is not to make us all believe all the things but rather to unpack them a bit, see what challenges us, see what we want to do away with, and see what might be worth hanging on to. So this morning we're going to get started with just the small, manageable topic of sin. (laughs) We're going to get it all cleared up in the next 15 to 18 minutes. Right. (laughs) Of course, it's too big of a topic. But we're going to think about it together in some ways over the next few minutes and see what we find. If there's anything worth keeping or if we want to throw the whole thing out. I feel like before I go any further, I have to confess that I will do almost anything to avoid using the word sin in worship. I almost never use it. I'm game to talk about our brokenness or the ways we all have faults 
or the ways we wound our lives and the lives of others and the life of the world. I'm willing to talk about how we all screw up and what a mess we make. But I really have a hard time talking about sin and using that word. Because sin has so much baggage with it for so many people. It is almost impossible to disentangle it from judgmentalism. It can feel like sin is just one step away from talking about sending people to hell. Sin is often just a list of don'ts. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, don't have sex before marriage. If it is fun, do not do it. It is a sin. It becomes a concept that is ripe with hypocrisy. Folks pick and choose which sins really count as sins and which ones we ignore. It yields terrible uh, philosophies like hate the sinner, love the, hate the sin, love the sinner. This is the problem. You can't ever get it straight who and what you're hating once you start hating. Sin is just a mess of a doctrine. It's fair if you want to leave the whole concept behind. But I love this passage from Paul. I love it. It's a little tortured, but I do like it. He says, I don't do the things I want to do. I do the very things I intend not to do. I just can't seem to help myself. I set out to do one thing, and I go and I do the exact opposite thing. I do the very things I wish I wouldn't do. Paul's maybe a little obsessive about all of this. He could probably use a good therapist. But really, who can't use a good therapist? One person at Bible study this week observed that Paul's experience here sounds a lot like addiction. I don't want to, but I can't help myself whether that addiction is to alcohol or opiates or spending or eating, the dynamic is the same. I don't want to do it, and I feel like I can't help myself. I need help. It's the same dynamic I have with anger. It just erupts, and then immediately I regret it, and I make a hundred resolutions not to do it again. And then it erupts, and I regret it, and I'm back in that cycle. Maybe it's lying that works that way for you, or maybe it's gossip, or maybe it's something that's ostensibly good, like caretaking, but you just can't stop, even when it becomes intrusive or invasive or burdensome. Maybe it's something like perfectionism that you just can't let go of. I don't want to do this, but I feel like I just can't stop. We can all relate to that. And that's Paul's experience. He just can't help himself. He needs some help. And he's willing, and this is what I love, he's willing to be honest about that. 
He doesn't tell us what his specific struggle is, which I appreciate because it makes room for all of the rest of us to put in our own experience. He doesn't tell us what his own experience is or uh, specific situation is. And he doesn't define sin, which I wish he had because it might help. He uses the Greek word hamartia, which means missing the mark or fault or guilt. But he doesn't say if he means a specific set of things he does or more of some kind of existential condition that we all find ourselves in. He doesn't define it. He just says that something lives within him that seems connected with doing things he wishes he wouldn't do. He has this internal experience. It could be a depressing passage to really look at how we do all these things that we just wish we could stop and we can't manage to stop them. It could be very depressing, and maybe it is for you. But what saves it for me is Paul's vulnerability. He's brave here. He's honest. He admits he needs help. And by being vulnerable and brave and honest, he breaks that cycle of shame and isolation that can come with so much talk of sin. He admits he needs help. And if there's some kernel about this idea of sin that is useful, for me, this is it. It is a door that opens when we say we need it's a way to admit that we need help. There's something inside of us that makes us miss the mark all the time. There's this great quote from Anne in Anne of Green Gables where she says, Isn't it nice to think that tomorrow is a new day with no mistakes in it yet? It is so nice to think that, isn't it? And we know we're going to make mistakes in that new day. I don't know if you've been up for one hour or two or five or more already, especially if you have a little one at home who's not sleeping. But I'd wager some of us have already made mistakes we regret this morning. And if we haven't yet, well, the whole day is ahead of us. <laughs> we've got plenty of time. It's part of our human condition that we make mistakes. And naming that is one of the most important steps we can ever take if we want to get loose of perfectionism and shame. There's a line earlier in Romans that says, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which might feel excessively guilt-inducing, but I think there's some truth to it. Whatever sin is, we are all in it together. That's why we come here and confess our sin. We don't say we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we do often say before God, with the people of God, I confess to my brokenness, to the ways I wound my life, the lives of others, and the life of the world. Or we do like we did this morning, and we reflect silently on a prompt like, we all mess up. 
how have you hurt yourself or others or the world this week? It's not about coming and feeling bad about ourselves. That's not why we do it. It's a way of admitting we need some help. And we do it together because we're all in it together. That's the other thing about sin that I think is a useful piece of the concept, is that it is not just about individual bad decisions. Sin is a word that can cover our individual mistakes, but it also includes things we do all together. So our nation's original sins of genocide and slavery, those are things we're all in together to some extent. Misogyny and racism work the same way. It's not just a matter of a few bad actions by a few bad apples. It is a system we are embedded in. It is corporate sin. And if we can name it, then we might begin to find a way to get out of it. If we can't name it, we can't get loose of it. If we're going to keep the concept, I think a fresh definition might help. The best definition I have come across for what sin is comes from a theologian named Paul Tillich. Tillich was a chaplain in World War I. I can't think of a more intense exposure to the realities of sin than to be on the front lines of World War I. He came out of that experience as a young man and wrestled with what he had seen and experienced for decades afterwards. And one of the things he came to in that wrestling was that sin in his mind is estrangement. Sin is estrangement, separation between us and others, between us and God, between us and even ourselves. Sin is the separation we feel. We are separated from one another when we do things that hurt each other. We are separated from one another just because we are self-centered sometimes. We are separated from God. We listen to those voices in our heads and those voices in society more than we listen to that still small voice because we're separated from God. And we're even separated and alienated from ourselves. We fail to see what beautiful creatures we are. Made in the image of God, we lose track of that. We are separated from ourselves. We all share that condition of separation. That's sin. If you don't like the word, you can stop saying it. But let's hang on to that concept. We're meant to be connected. We're meant to be connected to God and to each other and to ourselves. But we're all separated. And so we all need help. We are all powerless. Our lives become unmanageable. And we need that's the door that sin opens. And being able to ask for help means that healing is possible. 
if we are willing to walk through that door and say, I need help, then and only then can we begin to find healing. I love how Jesus approached sin. His responses to sin, I think, are deeply healing. He's not a magic wand that you just wave and it erases everything. He acted like sin was real. He held people to account for things they had done. And at the same time, he forgave wildly, profligately, ridiculously. He acted like sin was real, but that it does not get the last word. That's the truth. Our brokenness, our separation is real. And it doesn't get the last word about us or about the world. Our brokenness, our separation, our sin is real, and it doesn't get the last word. That's what Christ came to say and to show. Paul goes on and finishes his train of thought on this subject. And where he ends up is one of my favorite places in the whole Bible. After working this through, he says, So now there isn't any condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. We're just all in this together. No need for special condemnation. Because I am convinced, he says, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death or life, not angels or rulers, not things present or things to come, not powers, not height nor depth, nothing in all of creation. Not our woundedness, not our brokenness, not our separation, not our sin. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's the best news I know. Amen.